Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. The Queen's Gambit is filled with music that lifts and drives the narrative. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode features my interview with the composer of the hit Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Gambit is part action, part drama, part coming-of-age story that leaves you cheering at the end. But its subject matter is daunting. It's so complex for any composer. A genius young girl learns chess while in her orphanage from the janitor, Mr. Scheibel, all while being fed a steady diet of pills by the orphanage's staff, downers being commonly used back in the mid-20th century to help keep control over so many kids. She becomes an addict, and her addiction to her drug-induced state of focus helps her master the game of chess, or so she thinks. Beth, the main character, goes from orphan to adopted daughter to chess superstar before she's even through high school. And the music all throughout tells her very complicated story, one that's filled with different highs and lows, discoveries and tragedies, moments of humor, moments of sorrow, of victory and defeat. The music is the glue in the narrative that serves as our bond, the audience's bond, to Beth and her remarkable story. You know, I was so taken by the music that I almost instinctively reached out to Mr. Rivera, the composer, to tell him how wonderful his work is. Fortunately for us, he agreed to come and speak 
on The Soundtrack Show. In part one of our interview, he talks about his musical background, his time as a guitar player in the music business, and a brush with rock and roll fame, his studies under Randy Newman, and how he became the composer of one of the biggest TV shows of 2020. Before scoring The Queen's Gambit, Carlos Rafael Rivera was the composer of the 2014 film A Walk Among the Tombstones, starring Liam Neeson. As well as a series from 2017 called Godless, for which he won an Emmy. Here is part one of my interview with the Queen's Gambit composer, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Welcome to the Soundtrack Show, Carlos. I'm so glad you're here. It's a privilege, man. This is the coolest, coolest thing to be part of. Thanks. Thank you. I want to start by asking you just sort of about your influences and background as a composer. I mean, I, for example, I, I read that you were mentored mm-hmm. by none other than Randy Newman. Can you describe that experience, kind of your Carlos origin story? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Um, it was uh, at around 2000, I got signed by a record label and uh, by Universal Records, and it's actually a sublet label called 333 Music, which was started by Tom Shadiak. And he's a very big director. He did really amazing movies that were part of my childhood, you know, like uh, Liar Liar and then eventually Bruce Almighty. So he's done (laughs) quite a few things. Really funny, great films and very, very beautiful human being. And we had been signed in 2000. By 2003, we had been dropped. The the label had sort of folded. There had been a bunch of stuff that went on. So I had that sort of VH1 behind the music experience. And, and was um, this with the band? Was this Zoo Story? Was that the name of your band? Yep. Yeah. story and so we got to you know put a song in one of tom shadyak's films it was a it was called dragonfly and it was like the end title song you know and it was like this amazing thing because the first time i saw the name a a billboard of a film like in in la because i lived in la at the time 
And I remember, <laughs> I remember just freaking out that, oh my God, our song's part of that. And even when I went to the premiere, um, I remember when the music played at the end credits, I felt like I had done it at home. Like it wasn't yeah. really happening. Like it, I felt like I artificially added my own track to the end, you know? You pressed play and, uh, at the end and turned yeah, on the volume totally. on the TV. Yeah, yeah. It was like home karaoke, you know? And that was that 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 was a very very big experience for us. But at the end of the day, after that three year sort of run, the album never really got officially released. The label had folded. It was like a lot a big learning experience for me. And right at two thousand three, I hadn't quite finished my master's degree at USC. And the, and my teacher Donald Crockett, who had told me when I got signed, he's like, "Go go get do your your young ones," you know. So I went in, away and did that whole. Uh, rock and roll experience and then he I had breakfast with me he said have you thought of finishing your master's and I was like nope and he goes well maybe all you're missing is a recital why don't you look through that and see if you can and I did and I and I followed through and then we had another breakfast and he goes have you thought of getting your doctoral degree and I was like nope because I had really those three years really were very big and transformative for me and I was really kind of lost I wasn't sure what I was going to do so he really helped me come back to music in a way hmm. and Along with coming back to that program, um, once I started the doctoral degree, there was a mentorship program that USC had, and they had with members of the board at USC, and Randy Newman was one of them. And so there was an application process, so I applied, and I guess because I had been had been writing some classical music and had getting been getting some performances of it, and I had been in a rock band, it seemed like a good pairing. Hmm. And so when I received that that email from him. I showed it to my wife. I was like, oh, my God, you know, because I had I had been nerding out on him for like years. You know, I think I'd somewhere in my late 20s, early 30s, I really kind of I think we all kind of go through this where we maybe know of a band or of a group or of an artist. And then one day the doors open and we get it. Mm -hmm. And and then you just fall down the rabbit hole. So I had just fallen down like before I ever knew this opportunity would happen, like three years before. And it was just obsessing over Randy Newman songs. Um, so you know, so particularly Ohio, his songs, not his film scores at that point, right? Him as an yeah, artist, as was, a solo artist. Yeah. And I was very well aware of his film scores. I love Toy Story 2 particularly. Yeah. I love that song he'd written for Toy Story 2. So Absolutely. there was like a lot of things. I was just like a big Randy Newman fan, like the whole package fan, you know, but, but not just film scores. It was a lot of the songs and the songwriting and how he wrote lyrics in a way and you know, what sarcasm meant and what irony meant and what, you know, how, how you could actually get away with writing for characters and personas as a songwriter um, and other identities and, and, and flesh those out. And, you know, and, and so I was always admiring his, his approach to songwriting just as a fan. And so then, yes, so we started uh, the mentorship. By, by that, I mean, he invited me over to his house and I thought it was going to be a 15-minute meeting, you know, where he'd say, you're a good half Cuban kid. Uh, that's great that you're writing music. That's cute. I'm going to go back to being Randy. You go be you, you know, <laughs> or as they say now, I've been hearing so much, you do you or whatever. And I thought it was going to be like 15 minutes and it turned out to be like a two hour hangout. And he, and I didn't expect that. I was like a fan that I was going, oh my God, he's playing piano right now. Look at his hands playing piano. That's Randy Newman's hands playing. I'm not kidding. I was that <laughs> level of obsession like i couldn't believe that we were hanging out and he was really kind and that's the i guess the underscore here is that he was really giving of his time he was really committed he you know i played some music that i had written he was listening to it critiqued it was talking about other things was playing music he loved and all of a sudden it was like two and some odd hours and i was like 
oh my god, I, you know. So I said, well, I think I should get going. He's like, yeah, sure, sure, no problem. Then he calls me like a month later, and he has like a a a, a session for I think it was Princess and the Frog, and he invited me over. So I got to see the session happening, and that the scoring session, and it was just uh, again a dream country. I was like literally the Which stage uh, fly was it? on the wall. I I want I don't remember I I want to say Warner it's not Warner Brothers and maybe it was Eastwood. I don't remember oh hey because yeah yeah here the reason why I'm I'm kind of ignorant to that is because I left LA in 2010 and I had not been involved in the film industry music industry I had only been you know I I came into this film music thing like four years after I'd left Los Angeles so knowing where the stages were right and where things are was is still not something because I've been working remotely and and I've only recorded outside of the US not here hmm. so I'm I'm not partial but I remember when I walked in there it was like the coolest thing because the musicians were great he ran the room but the biggest coolest thing I got to learn was that he was a collaborator with the directors and the producers in the actual booth and and so i remember there was two directors on that film and i can't quite remember their names but they were there were two directors on the film and and i just i'm sorry i'm forgetting their names now that's okay i'll and, look it up while we're talking yeah and they were making um and they were making a comment they're like you know i'm not i'm not sure about this thing and i remember thinking to myself as that critique was happening i was like Dude, he's Randy Newman. Randy, you're Randy Newman. You can't let him tell you to, you know. And and he turns around. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know what? Let me let me see what I can do. And I was like, oh, he's working for the story. Right, that's you know, his client. Working. Yes, and yeah. I, and I had no idea that. I just thought he was the great Randy Newman. You know what I mean? And I did, sure. That's how. And I think many people perceive that that, that composers have like this. Thing, but the truth is we are working to serve the director's vision and and the story and and that that was a great lesson like that i learned from just being there and then of course he was always funny like super super funny and witty and 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 you could tell the orchestra loved him i got to be in a another session called leatherheads as well um that with george clooney uh -huh. and I, I called my wife and i go george clooney's here and she's like, if you shake his hand, don't wash your hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's it a long time ago. George Clooney was like, you know, and he still is. I mean, you know, he's amazing. And um, all right, he directed he Leatherheads as well. That's right. Right. He okay. directed. So it. he so was Randy the client was working for him. Yeah, he was the client, and uh, and I was there again, sitting in the corner and just you know watching it happen. So. Uh, for me, these were great moments because it was as close as, as I ever gotten to to seeing what the process was like, and to and and especially at that final stage, which is we were just making the music's been approved, we're just making it. So let's right. how do we make it amazing, you know? So that and seeing how he worked with them was great. for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. What's great at talking to you about this stuff is that, you know, we spent a lot of time on the soundtrack show in particular, talking about film scores that have been around forever. But I mean, in hearing you talk, and I'm sure Randy Newman, uh, this is where he was coming from as well when you guys were talking for a long time, is that you are part of Hollywood's current and future generation of music for the screen, you know? I mean, you're you're the next voice. And I'm curious to know how you went from 
being mentored to suddenly making that transition into actually doing film and television? Because that's a that's a tricky process, you know, how, how you get to that level. So so I, I teach at the Frost School and I have I teach in the film scoring program. I run the, the program there and uh, media writing production program. And I have tell the students that what they should be training for is to become composers assistants and understand the technology um, if they're going to go that route, you know, because there's different routes you can take. But my, mine is unorthodox is in the sense that as I went back to get my doctoral degree, I also started teaching privately guitar lessons. And as I was mentoring with Randy Newman, I was teaching different folks. And, and I'll tell you a little bit of the longer story than I usually say, because I was teaching at the Pasadena Conservatory, and one of my students was a guy called Michael Legato, and I'd only known his mom. And his mom was Cynthia Legato because she would bring him over, you know, like they bring the students, hi, how's my son doing? Oh, he's doing great. And we had lessons. He was a really cool kid. I'd had these, um, this orchestral music performed in the Pasadena Conservatory put like a, a you know, announcement of, you know, our faculty doing things. And he asked me, he goes, hey, I heard you had an orchestral piece performed and you know, do you have a recording? I was like, yeah, sure, man, sure. And I gave it to him. And then he comes back the next class and he goes, you know, my dad listened to it and he loved it. And I go, um, yeah, that's cool, man. Anyways, <laughs> oh, let's no. go. You know, I don't know what to say, you know, cause I'm, I'm like, that's so awesome. You know? And then he, he goes, oh no, he's, he's working on something and he'd like to talk to you. And I go, okay, what's your dad's name? He goes, his name is Michael Legato. I go, okay. And I went home and I looked him up and he's like the VFX guru for Titanic and avatar and i th i think it's some of the technology for jungle book um so he's won oscars like for hugo and titanic and he's he's this incredible guy and he was doing this thing for adobe um and so i ended up meeting him and he says oh i love your music i want you to score this thing it's going to be great it's a little short film for adobe software and at that point i met him he took me to the studio where he was filming it and uh and he walked around introducing me like I was a composer for the show. And I'd never done anything, like anything. And he was like, oh, this is our composer. I was like, oh, my God. And then I, <laughs> at some point, he even asked me, what is the uh, what flavor of QuickTime do you use? I go, any flavor is fine, because I had no idea what he was talking about, <laughs> H264. None of that stuff was in my wheelhouse at all. And so I went home, and I called a couple of friends who were working and in the industry, and I said, what do I do? They go, you need logic. And uh -huh. you need a Mac because I was a PC guy. So I kind of did my first kind of diggings in that. And I showed what I was doing to Randy Newman. The point I'm getting, that's the setup because that was a small thing. It was an experience I had. I learned about the process. And then I had uh, another private student who's Scott Frank. And Scott Frank is the reason I'm getting to talk to you. Because I, this was 2003. As I was getting back to music uh, school, I decided, you know, just to invest myself completely into music. And I, I was building websites and doing all kinds of things in those interim years of the rock band. And so I ended up putting a flyer up and I went to meet Scott Frank, who wanted lessons. And at the time, he was a writer. I didn't even know that. I walked into his studio and I saw on the wall, there were these really, <laughs> there was these posters for Little Man Tate and Dead Again and Minority Report and wow. Out of Sight. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. What do you do? He goes, oh, I wrote those. I go, what you know and and so it was it was just okay great that's awesome but i was like you know because i'm a big fan of this stuff you know i've been a fan of film since i'm a kid and 
I would actually record on VHS the Oscars, you know, since like the early 90s and, and record them because I'm, you know, and I grew up in Central America. So it's always been this far removed thing. So I got home from the lesson, you know, with, with Scott and I told my wife was like, this guy's like a big, big writer for Hollywood stuff. And she goes, yeah, that's cool. You, the dishes, you, you got to do the dishes. I was like, that's right, that's right. Bring you back so, down to earth. <laughs> it's always, you know, it's what they're, you know, my wife's been with me for a long, for, geez, we've been like hooked up since for almost 30 years now. And wow. I don't know why she hasn't left me. So, but <laughs> she definitely grounds me. And, and that was it. So that meeting was ineffectual. I didn't think anything would happen from it because he was a writer anyway. And he goes off to make his first movie. This is 2003. So 2005 or six, he's going to make a movie with James Newton Howard scoring it. Mm -hmm. And James Newton Howard was going to be his composer. And I go, okay, great. So I'm going to teach you how to talk to a composer. I had no idea. Now looking at it, I, I was saying all the wrong things. But I was like, you're going to learn about music so you can actually learn how to talk to the composer and get what you ultimately want. You know, so I was almost like a... I guess when your friends go out on dates when you're younger and, and you're like, oh, what happened? How did it go? I was kind of that person. Yeah. I was like, How, you know, so getting to see it vicariously, live through him, his his Hollywood thing that he was doing. It was his first film. And he goes away for a couple of years, comes back because it took him forever to make the movie. And then he comes back. And but right now it's 2008. And he goes, Carlos, you know, we've been doing this for like five, six years. He never asked me to, you know, hook you up. And. I said, sure, no, I, I didn't, I, I haven't done that. And he knew about Randy Newman and knew about those things. But he goes, why haven't you done it? And I was like, well, in your world, I'm your guitar teacher. And I hate when people do that. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah. hey, buddy, yeah. you know, your cousin, you know, can you give my script to blah, blah, blah. And I just, I, I've never been a fan of that kind of practice. So, and he goes, well, Carlos, listen, I'm working on something now. And if you'd like to try writing music for it, I was like, yes, yes, I'd love to do that, you know? And and that was something that never happened. That was 2008 into 2009. He, it was like a project that went away for him. But our process started. And I, even at the time, he was like, Carlos, you're definitely not going to get this movie. But you could write the temp music for it and maybe just, you know, get some experience in the industry. I go, dude, that is so cool. So like the kindest thing of him to do. And but that project went away and I moved to Miami. So anyways, I'm going to stop. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, it's, it just goes to show that so much of it is being in the right place at the right time and just it's personality driven as well as talent. You know, I mean, talent is almost a given. It's otherwise you wouldn't be in the room. But, you know, friendships and, and working relationships and being able to kind of have these conversations, you know, and be in a room together for long periods of time and not drive each other crazy. These are the intangibles that seem to create careers. Yeah. Is, yes. is kind of I think so. what you're reinforcing, something that we hear all the time. Yeah, it, it's the psychology behind the ability. I think a lot of people get caught up in the craft alone, which is awesome and it's something I'm constantly learning about. But but I do think that there there should be like a whole like, you know, psychology person analyzing how people interact and, and how to make relationships work in, on, in duress or uh, under a lot of stress because – it, it's all great when you're meeting, but when things are going bad, how do you act in that moment? And what, how do you kind of get through that? That's, that, that says, I think the people that have, at least I've not been fired by Scott because of that, you know, I think, <laughs> and, and I mean it, I think yeah. it's very true. I think you have to, you have to find a way to kind of, you know, cheer up Charlie, you know, or whatever, <laughs> just find a way to kind of not, 
not show anything. They got so much pressure going on that your job is more of a cheerleader in the in the journey and and then then sharing my own problems that I'm dealing with. I can't figure this cue out. I can't figure this cue out. Right. You know, because he'll tell me if it's not working, he'll you know he'll definitely he'll definitely brutally let me know. And, and it's because we have this kind of relationship where. We can't, you know, at least he could tell me, you know, because I'm very aware of the relationship we have professionally that um, that if it's not working, he's not addressing me personally. I think a lot of people take the first rejection very personally. But I think this industry or this profession or whatever it is, it, it seems to be it's very much about getting rejected and understanding that that's a callus you build and it's not that important. You think that piece of music was great, but if they don't like it, you can think all you want. You got to write another one by tomorrow. You know? Yeah. Who so. was it that said? Was it Jerry Goldsmith, who was a very famous composer, that said that you're not a real film composer unless you've had one of your scores rejected? Yeah. You know that 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 that's such <laughs> sure. an important part of the process of, of understanding sort of that. Uh, Randy Newman, Princess and the Frog dynamic that you were talking about, which is that he is in service of a larger narrative and it's happening under pressure and it's happening much faster than I think the average person realizes. Um, yes. Yeah, that's a, yes, that's a yes. great lesson. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. We could talk about this stuff forever. I, I, in fact, I could go on a whole sidebar about the music business in the early 2000s, you know, I mean, leading. In fact, why don't we? Because I think it's fascinating that you kind of started gravitating towards uh, film scoring at a time when the right. music business, I mean, in terms of the traditional record companies and record sales was had imploded. I remember yes. that very, very well. I was like, hmm, post or video games or do I try and you know, keep playing my guitar and drums, like, you know, having that moment yeah. in the early 2000s when Napster happened and, and everything. I mean, that did that right. play into your, was your negative experience? I shouldn't say negative. It was probably a very positive experience, but your, your understanding of the complications of the music business, did that play into you gravitating towards film music or was it always just no. kind of there for you as something that you loved? No, you know, I, I mean, I will say, first of all, I, it was a negative experience, but it was a learning experience. I mean, I say the first few years of being in the rock and roll thing was amazing. And and I think I was plagued by ignorance. I, I had, I really believed, and I don't believe it now in, in, in any kind of, at the certainly at the same level, is that I believe when I got signed in 2000 is that I was an artist you know, like in a rock band. Yeah. And so we were signed. I had an advance. We had a decent, you know, I was making a living, literally making music and not doing that much work. You know, we're kind of making the record show up. I had boutique guitars. It was like I, one of those very fantasy-like y- experiences. On, and, and I think my ignorance sort of helped me have the high. And the way I would describe it to many people when I, I get into that specific story is that it's like you're living the dream, you know. When it's a dream, it's You've amazing. Made it. But, yeah, yeah, You've but made when, it. but but when it's bad, it's a nightmare, right? That's what living the dream really means. Is that is that when things go bad, it went bad, mm. and 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 all of a sudden, like the floor gets pulled uh, from under you. You have no idea what's going to happen next. That sort of feeling was more of from an experience that from what I learned, it was more of the politics that were happening in the label because we were the third band to be signed. The first band got released, the second band did and then we certainly did not afterwards. So there was a lot of things. And that's when the word politics came in to my sort of 
sphere of understanding and relationships. And so I, I, you know, I, I sort of was, I had the experience and I say the VH1 behind the music without it ever getting made because no one heard us or saw us. We had a couple of songs out and, but that was really our own personal journey. Great experiences though, man. We got to do all kinds of amazing things. We got to open for the who at the Hollywood bowl. We got wow. all kinds of like j- dream experiences. So, but then all of those kind of like went away. And and the way I say it is like also with the students is like you have this sort of thing where that week we played at the Hollywood Bowl. The following week we played at a sushi bar. That's <laughs> that's the reality. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> opening band you know, blues. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and man, I all kinds of experiences like that. You played at, at a coffee shops when the when the when the froth maker would go on in the best part of the song or whatever. You know, you're like da da da. <laughs> you know, in acoustic sets that, yeah, it, it, that's the reality of, of that. And I think that really helped me as I've come into this side. And I think being older has helped me, I think, um, understand the importance of it, you know, that, and it's, it, it's easier to say than live because it's, it, but, but the truth is that you are not your music. You, you, and, and to believe that is, is really the goal is to understand that you are not defined by your music. You are you. I have my wife, I have my kids, I have all this other life and all these other things that I really love and enjoy. And the music I make is a part of me, but it's certainly not what defines me. Yet I lived many those years specifically. If that wasn't working out, then I wasn't working out. Right. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's funny to hear your, you know, you had to make a, a massive pivot in your career and in your life. And I, I can only imagine that that served you so well when suddenly you're on a project and you have to pivot styles or direction on a cue. Um, you know, right. it, it gives you that flexibility you need to be successful. And it sounds like that ultimately as painful as those experiences might've been, you know, the high highs and the low lows, it yeah. really serviced your career in ways that you couldn't predict at the time. Oh, I think so. I, I think, I think more than anything, I, yeah, I, I think it's an important thing to be aware that, that you know, especially when I, with the students, I share all my mistakes. You know, that's what teachers are supposed to do is, is, is help the students become better than they are. Like, I want them to write better music than I'm writing. I want them to do better than I'm doing because this is, and and I get to, what's exciting about being in the position I'm in uh, as a teacher is that I'm actively in the battlefield, quote unquote, you know? So I'm bringing all the, all the screw ups, you know, here, I'm going here, this is, try not to do if I was a student of, of myself, I'd be like, well, whatever, old man, you know, I'll do my thing and maybe not listen to it. But at least I'm presenting you the mistakes so you yeah. can have the choice to make them or not. And I'm, I'm a big, big fan of that, of, of trying to uh, improve, you know, uh, by what the work I'm doing and sharing the mistakes I'm making with the students. So it's, it's so interesting to hear that because my first exposure, real exposure to your music was Queen's Gambit. Here's the story. I finished watching Queen's Gambit. And I saw your name on the screen and I literally just, I had my phone in front of me and I just instantly went to it to try and find you online. And I saw you were on Twitter and I just sent you a tweet saying, I really loved your music. And I was so taken, particularly, you know, I was the entire series, but those last couple of episodes, you know, and just for everyone listening, there will be Queen's Gambit spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, the limited series uh, on Netflix, you should definitely check it out. I think it's seven episodes. Seven. Yeah, seven, seven episodes. episodes and, yeah. and they were just so compelling. And I just sent you a tweet saying, I just loved your music. And you were, and you wrote yeah. back. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. You said, hey, thanks. You know, and I just thought, man, it's it's such a good <laughs> series. And your music was 
perfect. Um, before I get into your well, music, I, though, I freaked out. So, Wait, hold on, but I freaked out. I freaked out because you wrote to me because it's you. So it was me? like you know you can <laughs> you, you can't you can't even see this, but you you I don't know if you see it. You see already my stuff behind here. Yeah. Do you see do you see the speeder? Oh yeah, I see the uh, the biker scout and the speeder bike. Yeah. Oh, you're a Star Wars fan. I see. Yes. Oh, you have no idea. Look, there's, there's this. <laughs> oh my God. There's a Millennium Falcon. I because I'm kind of doing some stuff that the Millennium Falcon's in a garage. The shot. The child is actually showing up tomorrow and will be there. Oh, nice. Like right there. Then the speeder will go on my desk. So, yeah. I mean, yes. And I. I, I so it's again thrilled to be able to talk to you. So I wanted to pause and interject for that reason. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah. I. I just. I wanted to to let you know how much I enjoyed your music and. And particularly because the subject matter was so unique and um, yeah. must have been so challenging. So before we even get into your music, I just wanted to hear what your first impressions are when you first started having meetings about the series and when you first saw a rough cut or started speaking to the director. Uh, you know, what went through your head in terms of how well, what your approach was going to be? It was a sort of a mixed bag because... I, I got like an email in April of 20, like two years ago uh, from the, from Scott saying, it looks like this may be the next thing we do for Netflix. And so I immediately, it was called, the, the email title was The Queen's Gambit. Gambit. And, uh, and so I went and I downloaded the book immediately, read it like in a day, because it's a short story. It's, it's not a story, it's a short novel. It was like one that you kind of really is a page turner. And I started thinking, this is awesome. So two things came to mind at the, even then. I was like, okay. I'm kind of screwed because in the novel, she does listen to more classical music, like listens to classical music. And Walter Tevis, one of the great writers, uh, he, uh, I think he wrote The Hustler as well, Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, he describes chess and sometimes makes references to it like it was like chamber music. So there's a lot of classical implications. And because of the kind of game it is, um, I realized it was going to be classical music would help tell the story because there's point, there's counterpoint, move, counter move. The idea of, of that was already, and I was already intimidated by that because it's hard music to write. And mm. then, um, and then the second layer was the fact that it was chess. And I was like, I remember searching for Bobby Fischer and I remember the James Horner score all, since I, I love that film and I love that, but it's really hard to make it. And there's so many games that she plays in a novel. I was like, Scott's going to have to cut some down, I guess, but I was not sure, um, and Scott told me early on that music was going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So I was more scared than anything else because even the music editor who I've worked with in the previous two shows, his name was Tom Kramer. He's like, "Carlos, I, I, I yeah, good luck, man." <laughs> 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 and we get along like that too. We're pretty brutal with each other. So he was like, "You know, try to keep your job, buddy." <laughs> See on the other side. (laughs) Well, that uh, that actually is. I mean, I did have that follow up question, which is the reason why I wanted to write to you is because I was I was floored by how excited I was by chess, floored by like the 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 forward motion, the momentum that the music provided. You know, obviously, you know the the way it was shot, the way it was cut, you know, but the way it was scored, all of those things came together. Was was there a temp score for any of that, or were you just kind of like on your own? We're not sure. No, the way I worked with Scott is that there's no temp score. since the beginning and and he's very much a a, a fan of that's why it takes me like two years because 
I'm writing music to the screenplay and I started oh. writing music after I read the novel and I started sending him music and he'd be like, I would actually do an iMovie of the screenplay of scenes. Like if you're reading a screenplay yeah. and you go, oh, this, this could use music, you know, or this could use music. That's what I do. I'll pick like scenes that feel like montages definitely always need music and or set pieces. And um, I would write them. Uh, and and make an iMovie and I'd score the iMovie. So you're looking at the screenplay, you're reading it in real time and music's playing. So um, I would send them that. That's something we've been doing that since the beginning and that's really helped define what sucks because you're making a lot of mistakes in those. I'm writing, I'm using instruments he doesn't like and I didn't know he didn't like, you know? And um, I'm making choices that seem right or wrong to me and he's like, no, they're both wrong. And then, so <laughs> a lot, and, and I, and it truly is a search. It's like you're almost subterfuge, you know, you're almost like trying to dwindle through all kinds of things to get to what feels right. And then once that happens, then the main title happened by December of 18 and and it stayed all the way and the main title is a main on end it plays at the end of the show mm-hmm. very end but but that basically was the the generator of all the material that comes before it and what's cool about it it's almost like um it turned out this way this is no, you don't i didn't know this was going to happen you know what i mean like it's easy to talk about like it's all thought through but the fact is a lot of luck did happen and play out in this one because it sounds like it's almost like a deconstruct you know like in food foodies you mm-hmm. know people that really like really good nice restaurants or whatever and and they have a deconstructed cuban sandwich mm-hmm. so you have a piece of bread here and then a little ham here right. and then a little cheese and right. all you know and so that's sort of what ended up happening the music started very small and then it got large till the final game and then you have the main title, which is all of the themes, all of them in one like two minute bam package kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but there was a lot of doubt. I, I mean, a lot of mistakes that I was making early on for the game specifically. Well, one, sure. of the, one of the advantages of of doing music that early is that they can cut to music then. So they can did they were they then cutting yes. montage to your tracks at certain points? The one sequence, the one sequence that was cut. Uh, to a piece of music I wrote earlier was cut out of the st- out of the show. And oh. at the end of episode one, if you remember episode one, at the end of episode one, there's a scene after the pills sequence with amazing thing from the robe. Uh-huh. Um, there's a moment where, you know, she, she guys told you no more chess. And she's going to go to bed and she and she looks up at the ceiling and starts playing one game. Then she sees another board then another then four more. And she's playing like, you know, 15 or 12 games at the same time. This little sequence happened. I wrote this entire piece of music and um, and they cut to it. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like Fantasia. You know, I was showing it to my wife because it was like music I had written. And you're seeing all these really cool things happen. Uh-huh. And and that got cut out. Oh. So. So, um, so, but that's, that's the process. The, the, the pain of, of two years is that there's a lot of music that let's say you become fond of get, has to get thrown away in service of the story. Was and, that episode one? Did that end with her basically stealing all the pills and falling off the chair? Is that how it ended? Yeah. 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 That's I how do it remember. Ended yeah. In the final cut, in the final edit. And I think it's a, a wise decision. You're like, oh they man, to- you cut it, but that is such a good ending. I mean, that was a, a real, it's like, oh, okay, I have to watch the next episode. But oh, that's heartbreaking yeah, that's to hear. Yeah. But that's how it is. I mean, there's like, 
I mean, and that's exactly what I'm getting at to the thing I was talking about before is like if you get attached to that kind of thing, that's when you can lose the job. That's when you start kind of trailing the, hey, I got to say something. That sequence is great. And the music I wrote, the sequence is there because I wrote the music. That person will get fired mm -hmm. because that person is not thinking of the story. That person is thinking of themselves. Right. And, 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 and for me, that was like, that's where I like the fact that I'm older. I'm 50 now. And and I like that because because I it hurts, but I'm understanding like trust the director. You got it. And plus, whether you trust the director or not, which I do, it's their decision anyway. So shut up and write the next cue. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? It's a service industry. We serve the story. And yeah. so anyway, it's funny that I mentioned, you know, you're part of the current generation of composers and future composers as if, for the, you know, the phrase overnight success is such a myth. You know, you mentioned you're 50 years old. It, it, it It's always uh, the reason I wanted to hear about your, your, your sort of origin story is because there's so much experience that goes into being able to do what you're doing, which is what you've basically described, you know, your ability to, again, to pivot, to, to be flexible. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you if there were particular challenges too, about making, um, a period piece. You know, you, you talked about what instruments you liked, what you didn't like, you know, there's obviously the director's taste. The score seemed to really end up featuring, of course, you know, really featuring piano, but also strings, some wins, it seems like, how did you get there? Is there something about the piano that is timeless? What were kind of your thoughts about where is the, what's the sound of this? How's it going to land? That, that, that's a great question because, um, the, first of all, Scott wanted a piano based score. Ah, he was okay. very much, very much saying, I want piano, you know, and we had guitar and godless. I want piano in this. And he initially wanted only piano. He goes, I want a piano, exclusively a piano score. So. The first things I was writing were basically the main title was originally written just in piano and then with timpani and then I had to add strings and then I had to add more to, 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 to flesh it out and say I think the main title should be fully orchestral. But what I did do is that I kind of thought of the piano as a choir because I thought I was only going to be writing a piano score. So if I had three or four piano parts for example, uh, whoever was playing the lower part would be placed on the right side of the speaker of your headphones. Hmm. Uh, the middle parts would be towards the center, and then the soprano or the highest part would be on the left uh, side of the speaker, almost like you were looking at a choir, a piano mm -hmm. choir. So a lot of the parts in the actual score are still, that's baggage that got left over from the first versions of it. And it works actually to picture really well because, you, you know, the piano has several spaces it occupies, and then the instruments kind of come in. The The instrumentation had to grow by the time we got into episode two because she leaves the orphanage. And and so I started introducing flute and I started introducing, you know, more winds. And then by the time we're in the third episode, there's more brass. And by the time we get to the end, it's fully orchestral. And the reason, the reason was, or one of the ideas I had, which actually did survive to the end, was that when she's in the orphanage, her world is very lonely, dry, um, sad, uh, because she's a result of the choices that other people have made for her. And uh, she, she's there. And then when she falls in love with chess, when she sees chess on the ceiling, it's orchestral. Mm -hmm. Like everything, it's, you know, and like when you're a kid, you have this sort of, you know, I'm, one day I'm going to be, I'm going to be, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking of that song right now by, by the Proclaimers, I think it is. But anyways, when, you, when I'm, a, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of th see things fully fleshed out. 
So I like the idea of presenting what she imagined on the ceiling as the full orchestral reality that she does not live, yet everything else is just piano. And then as her life progresses episodically, we introduce more orchestra. So by the time we get to the final episode, her reality is the thing she envisioned and the piano is nowhere to be found as a concept. And it played out and it ended up working um, as an overall theme. But this was something that was developed over time. It wasn't like, you know what I mean? I started going, I think we can do this. And as Scott was approving the cues, I was like, I think we're getting away with this. Yeah. But I certainly never had this conversation with Scott during the process. It evolved. He was, yeah, it evolved. And I think he would be uninterested in that conversation. I think music nerds like us, you know, yeah. love this kind of stuff. And it motivates us to write. It motivates us to, it motivates us to make things. But when you start sharing that with a director, their eyes will just glaze over after yeah. a few minutes. They'll be like, they're like, piano what? I just don't like the cue. If they don't like the cue, then what am I talking about? You know, you know? It, yeah, it's so, it's a very human thing. I, I you know, I, I once read that that human beings are not able to experience things and reflect on them at the same time. And and if you're <laughs> if you're a director, if you're a director and you are in the hot seat experiencing things day to day, making a thousand decisions every day, if not more, yeah. you don't have time to think high level you know, poetic uh, music, you have time to think, does this cue work? I, I would argue subconsciously, though, that they mm -hmm. are feeling that. I mean, when you when you talk about full orchestra and chess, I immediately subconsciously start thinking about kings and queens and bishops and that, you know, sort of orchestral wow. Western tradition of brass and all of those things. Like, you know, because right. they're constantly talking about moving the queen and the, and the knights and the rook. You know, I start thinking in in those terms, whereas, you know, with Beth, it's the sort of quiet piano. Yes. But you can't talk about any of that stuff at the time is what you're saying. You know, it's yeah, just like, it doesn't does, it, does it feel right to you? Yes or no? I like this. Great. Let's move on. You know, and then maybe yes. at your 10 year retrospective, when you're all talking about, you know, uh, you know, all the awards you want are inevitably going to win. Um, you, you can talk about, uh, well, this is what I was thinking. And then, you know, nerds like me will deconstruct it. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, but I think, but that's what I mean. It's like, it's easy to say, well, I and get a British accent while I'm at it. You know, yeah. I conceived of it. I don't think, I think all these decisions are happening in real time in it's a way, but, but one thing, yeah. yeah, but at the same time, you're also very aware and, and more importantly, and I've noticed this in, in composers that, especially if they come from the classical side for where they were like commissioned to write music. They're like, I wrote this and the director doesn't understand. And I'm like, they don't, they don't have to understand. They shouldn't. You, yeah. and, and they're like, well, but I, it's a great, it fits perfectly to picture It's like, yeah, but they don't like it. That kind of, that kind of transition is very hard to make. And, and to believe that the esoteric things that drive us to make things are, are the things that everybody should get in line with. Our job is to get in line with them, you yeah. know, it, and it's, it's really hard to process when you're in, when you're doing that transition. I, but I, I can't encourage it enough to listeners that may be wanting to do this sort of thing to understand that keep these conversations to yourself, make them the internal motor and engine to drive you. Just concern yourself about getting approved. And once you're approved, then, like you said, you can look back and say, I was thinking of all this, you know, but but not in the moment, because it words don't justify the, you know, the important the, the the value of the music you're presenting. You, mm -hmm. you can paint anything you want but if the music's not making them react it doesn't matter it needs to know? speak for so, itself against picture yeah 
It does. It, man, this yeah. is a this is a good conversation because there's more to it. It's not so black and white because there are also the spotting sessions when when you're actually playing the music playback sessions. Those you also have to learn how to navigate. And I learned that from Tom because Tom Kramer was the music editor. And if we had seven cues to present one day and and Scott had had a bad previous meeting, he'd present three. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and knowing that the, and that's something that his experience helped me, you know, um, understand. That's a whole other conversation to have anyway. Um, yeah, no, that's it's yeah. it's such great advice. On the next episode, we discuss more of the themes and musical textures of The Queen's Gambit, as well as some wonderful behind-the-scenes stories. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.